This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Steph. Hello, Annabelle. How are you doing? I am well, and I'm very pleased that you're here because I've been waiting to play you this thing for some time. Um, Now, you know how I spent heaps of last year talking to political women about their experiences in Parliament? Well, I got a phone call um, about a month ago from one of the women that I'd talked to, like, quite a bit earlier. The woman was Kate Sullivan and she was a senator for Queensland for the Liberal Party in the 1970s. She arrived in 1974. They made her change her name from Catherine to Cathy because it sounded nicer. They told her to stop wearing knee-high boots and uh, grow her hair long and also they made her stop smoking cigars because none of this was ladylike. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, that's the background on Kate. She's an um, amazing lady, got an absolute mind as sharp as a tack. But as you know, like a couple of months ago, Parliament was absolutely thrown into upheaval by the former staffer Brittany Higgins' report of a rape that she says occurred um, in a ministerial office. And it started this huge conversation mm. um, about what happens to women in Parliament. And I got a phone call uh, from Kate, who'd been watching Brittany Higgins really closely. When I saw Brittany's picture on the front page of the newspaper, I just thought, what enormous courage that must have taken. And I, I, I don't know what took her to the point of deciding she was going to speak out, but I'm so glad she did. I am so glad. I think womankind should be indebted to her for it because I know there are many women who are molested or there are attempts to molest them in the workforce and she gave me the courage to talk about it. Um, It's something I had just built up a mental block on. So this is why she was ringing me, right? Like she had been thinking and thinking about something that happened to her during her time in Parliament that she hadn't talked to me about the first time we had our long conversation. But having listened to Brittany Higgins, she was now ready to tell this story. It was when the party was under Peacock's leadership and I was still in the Senate, so it was sometime 83 or 84, And uh, there weren't really any female peers. And so I was always in the company of men and I never thought about it. And there was a senator I was quite friendly with and sometimes I'd drop into his office and we'd share a glass of port. Uh, You're filling in time at night when the days when we used to sit till 11. Um, And one night he just grabbed me and started to make like he was going to molest me. Now, I struggled hard and um, really hard and eventually let me go. And as I headed for the door, he spat the word bitch at me. Mm. Now, it's my experience that a lot of men, when they're rejected, get very vindictive. And that's why I understood why Brittany didn't make a fuss about it because she was afraid of this man spreading stories about her. So what happened after you left that office? Well, I just went back to my office in shock Um, and I didn't do anything about it. But after a time, I realised that those senators that I regarded as part of a circle of friends 
their attitude with me had changed. Um, they were much more reserved and, and looking at me differently. And I thought I worried that it, whatever it was might get to Peacock. So I went to Peacock and told him about the incident and I'm really very sure he knew what was going on. But the expression on his face was he clearly didn't believe me and he was kind of sizing me up and trying to decide why I was telling him this about that senator. Mm. And that is one of the most devastating experiences of my life. So why do you think, I mean, what we're finding out now <clears throat> is that various women have had these experiences um, yeah. within the parliamentary building and commonly, like you, I think, don't say anything about it. What is it that Because goes... men hold the power um, and you're not comfortable talking about it to men, um, or particularly male colleagues. It's not something you chat about. And I had no female colleagues I would have talked to anyway. I was really very shocked by the whole incident and shaken because I had trusted this man and thought he was a friend. I mean, I, I knew his wife, who was a good lady, and, and um, it was right out of the blue. And I was just shocked. Did he ever raise it with you again afterwards? Oh, God, no. Hmm. No. I and just avoided it, I mean, if I could. Kate, at the time you were in the Senate and you were in a Senate that not long after passed the Sex Discrimination Act. I was actually the shadow minister who handled that bill with relish, I might say. And, <laughs> and you, I mean, obviously this was a long debate in the Senate and yeah. all of these issues were covered. Did you ever stop to think, hang on a minute, this just happened to me in my own workplace? Um. No, because that was really the sexual harassment one. Mm. And um, no, I didn't. Well, that's sexual. I mean, you were it being sexually, you were being sexually harassed in your workplace even as it was passing the Sex Discrimination Act. That's right, and by a senior senator. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd kind of been bluffed by it all. But then men just ran the place. That's all there was to it. And, and I always knew that, and, and I always knew that in a sense I was up against it. Isn't that an amazing story? Well, it's just harrowing, isn't it? Because it, it, it I mean, it, it's common and it hits home. And when she was talking about, you know, why can't you raise it? I think men do hold the power. But more than that, I think that position of power means that we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But at the expense of, of what? I think that for particularly for early women in the parliament, they all had a sense that they were like that the place wasn't designed for them. They weren't really mm. supposed to be there. And it means that something that specifically happens to women is not really part of the central business of the place. Mm. So you already feel out of place enough. As she said, she didn't really have many female colleagues. So she was sort of trying to fit in with the blokes. Mm. And in that circumstance, when you, you know, have this story to tell of something that is a specific, you know, thing that happens to women, you don't really know where to put it. And 100%. she, I mean, this is why just looking back along, you know, those early women in parliament, I have so much respect for them because I just think, oh, man, like you, you're in a completely weird environment and there's no 
actual pointers around the place about how yeah. you deal with this, right? And it's so heartbreaking and so ironic that this would be happening while she's actually handling the legislation mm. to outlaw sex, sexual harassment in Australia Absolutely. through the workplace, the Senate, where this thing is actually happening to her and she doesn't even Crazy. stop and think, yeah, actually, that's happening to me right now. Yeah. And the weird thing, I mean, the Sex Discrimination Act, when it went through in 1984, um, like it was the brand-new Hawke government um, mm. legislated it, the woman who wrote it and got it through the Senate was Susan Ryan, who was the only woman in mm. the Hawke cabinet. So she kind of got her male colleagues on board to um, sponsor this legislation that was outlawing sexual harassment in Australian workplaces and outlawing discrimination on the basis of, of gender mm. um, or pregnancy. And it turned into this massive bun fight in the Senate. It was a really long and complicated debate, lots and lots of amendments, and there were lots of these sort of objections that were raised in the Senate that were just bizarre. Like, for instance, the argument was put by um, a crossbench senator that um, that the bill would force women into male jobs, like they would have to work mm. as brickies or shearers or they'd do their backs in carrying heavy postal bags. There was, like, quite a bit of attention <laughs> that was devoted to the um, idea that long-haul truck drivers would be forced to hire female co-drivers mm. and that they would have affairs and that marriages would be Ugh. ruined. It was like... It was pretty hectic. Yeah. Um, but, like, in the middle of all of that, it's so extraordinary to think that this woman, you know. Well, it just it just makes me realise what a debt of gratitude I, I owe to women who've come before me. Well, it's also about audibility, isn't it? Like, who gets, mm. who gets heard? Whose mm. stories get heard? Because, like, Kate's story is her recognition that nobody wanted to hear that story. Like, she yeah. had a crack at telling her leader about it and she was during that whole... Mm. encounter recognizing that actually this story was not going to be heard but also him. just that that when she said there like that she was watching him and he was thinking why are you telling me this like that's that she he was sort of seeking an ulterior motive mm. um, what i mean what other motive is there apart from hey this happened and that's not good. Well, I mean, the other interpretation is you're trying to make trouble, you know, for this settled system that yeah. works perfectly for blokes. You know, yeah. why are you coming in here and making my day more complicated? And, look, one thing that I think is really just touches me about that Kate story is we always kind of think that learning is kind of linear across generations, mm. like that younger generations learn from older generations. But what I get this really strong sense from with Kate is that she actually learned something from a much younger woman, mm. Brittany Higgins, like watched her really carefully and the decisions that she made and recognised that maybe she too was in a position to actually tell that story finally, which is pretty exciting, yeah. I think, like the the idea that um, that older women can learn from younger women as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many times do you hear it, you know, that... Um just even in passing or, you know, where people go, oh, yeah, no, that used to happen to us, we mm. just didn't talk about right. it. Right. And it's like, well, you don't have to accept that. Like that's, I think that's a huge thing of, of Kate and it probably put something to rest in her that set that, that sat there unsettled for a while and I'm sure that hearing that will also allow others in her position 
to have that same almost sense of closure. Yeah. Which is which is really special. And, you know, obviously I don't know Brittany, but I, I wonder if that would be if that would help her to know that. Well, I think the knowledge that you're giving some strength to other people is often a really big part of the why, of why people come forward. And mm. look, I mean, you know, Kate is not the only person who has seen what's happened and heard Brittany Higgins speak and responded themselves. So like the AFP, the Federal Police in um, Canberra, have now received, um, I think the last report was um, they they were advised of 19 separate incidents in Parliament House involving MPs and staffers of um, harassment um, ranging through to assault. So, you know, those decisions that individuals take do make a difference. Um, Absolutely. But also the other thing that's changed is that, and I, I... I don't think I ever really quite realised this. Like I knew that Parliament House was not good at taking action on sexual Mm. harassment and stuff, but actually like MPs and also some judges are actually have been exempt from the provisions of the Sex Discrimination Act in terms of like harassment stuff. So that is astounding to me. Right, because they have different, they have weird sort of employment relationships with their staff. But I mean... It's so ironic that, you know, that the building that invented this legislation and changed the mm. workplace for Australian women actually did not change its own work mm. practices. And, you know, the, the Prime Minister actually announced that they will be amending the Sex Discrimination Act so that it does apply um, to MPs and, and judges. But anyway... I. It is such a weird environment, Parliament, and I think people who work there are not always able to see it clearly from outside and see how unusual it is. And one of the really interesting women that I spoke to over the course of um, the last year was Julia Banks, who was a um, one-term Liberal MP in the Queen in the Victorian seat of Chisholm. But I'm interested in her because she actually had this. She's not a like long-term party warhorse type person. Grew up through the Liberal Party. She's a commercial lawyer like really a hard-nosed commercial lawyer, Mm. used to working in big organisations with lots of men and women. And so I asked her what it was like coming from that kind of commercial sector into working in Parliament House and um, this is what she had to say. Oh, look, I have witnessed, experienced and observed an extremely sexist and misogynistic culture, uh, appalling behaviour that you, you might occasionally see in the corporate or business world but they have structures and mechanisms to deal with it but the thing in federal parliament house there is nothing there for the it's this vacuum there is nothing there to deal with these things properly so you know you don't have to wait for the christmas party or um you know a corporate event uh, like you do occasionally where those um issues of misconduct come up in other workplaces in parliament that happen in day-to-day life in the corridors like a for example I remember once I was walking along the corridor um, and there was a male MP and I remembered I had to say something to him and I stopped him in the corridor and he had a young staffer standing next to him and I sort of was making eye contact with him talking to him we dealt with what he we needed to talk about and then he put his hand behind this young staffer she must have been in her early 20s and he was rubbing his hand up and down her back and, and I could see her visibly flinch. And he said, oh, have I introduced you to whatever her name was? Um, she's a new young intern here. And he just kept rubbing, sleazily running his hand up and down her back. And as she flinched, she 
she looked at me as if to, she must have seen the non-verbal cues, like, and she was, it was as if she was saying, don't say anything, please don't, don't, don't say anything. And I knew that, that, first of all, if I did say anything, I could have made it worse for her there and then. If I, even if I did say anything after that, I would have made it worse for her, uh, potentially. And uh, whereas if that exact same situation happened in most companies or organisations for which I worked, I knew that I would be able to manage it in this day and age. So just for some reason that image just really sticks in my mind of this young woman essentially saying, you know, don't help me. Yeah. It's it's really heartbreaking um, but I think it's a really good demonstration of this sort of um, unwritten rules yeah. of a place where people understand that to make a big deal out of something will have kind of adverse consequences for them, yeah, which for is sure. it's such a lonely kind of place to be, I think, that sort of environment. It's just fascinating because it just it also makes me very aware of, you know, this, is, this sounds so strange to say, um, and it's a weird thing to remind me of that. But you forget, right, that being in politics, it's a nine to five job. Like, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. working in parliament, mm-hmm. it's like that's just your workplace. Yeah. Well, that's sort of more like 7 a.m. till like 1 a.m. <laughs> like no, but really, yeah. like, they, and this is part of the problem. Like, they work such crazy hours and everybody's sort of locked in yeah. together. But, I, but I, what I mean is, though, that like, it is still a, job you know yeah. when, when I imagine in my mind when I think about politics I go oh that's almost not a real person right you know yep. and and there's this weird kind of gravitas or something that you hold these people in you, go, uh-huh. you yeah. work in parliament house wow you know like wow you must have this incredible life and it's like well no all of the same things apply mm. and actually in some cases are amplified and you know that that image that that she was talking about there is so so common, right? right? Mm-hmm. But it's this it's the sort of thing where in any other workplace, I, I've worked places where there's people like that, yeah. And you always take the opportunity to afterwards when you're alone with that person, for example, go, God, he's a creep, isn't he? Right. You so know? you kind of reach out and offer some, of course, support, right? Of yeah. course. But to be in a situation where it's like we don't even talk about that, you yeah. know, this is the way that I get ahead, this is how I make change. And that idea of having to, um, in so many ways, make yourself palatable or placate the power structures to be a part of the changing story, it's just such a common story because we don't like people who speak out. We don't like them at first, ever. We don't like a whistleblower. We don't like any of that. Yeah. And then eventually we go, oh, well, actually that's Hmm. you have to jostle the hornet's nest yeah, to and, make change. And often, you know, if an individual chooses to do that, they take the, like, the consequences. Oh, yeah. One of the things that really, actually, I really kind of came to understand talking to all these women is, is how much your age makes a difference. Like yeah. there's lots and lots of younger women in parliament. And that is because you have a lot of, like, enthusiastic young women that do those, like, junior jobs, so, like, mm. junior press sec jobs, junior electorate officer jobs, and they are up for the long hours, they're up for the hard work and the lack of recognition. And then as they get more senior, it gets, like if they decide that they want to have a family, it's much harder for women to combine work and family 
in that highly demanding environment where often there'll be a lot of travel involved, just because of the way our society works and what we assume mums will do and what dads will do, there's just a higher proportion of senior men there who might have families but they also have spouses who look after yes. the kids. So they tend to be like the the senior ranks in the parliament are kind of advisors and senior advisors and so on, more likely to be men and the juniors are more likely to be women. So you've mm. got this sort of quite structural difference in the and system. power dynamic. Right, yeah. yeah. Plus the whole place runs on gossip. Right. And yeah, often it's about like, you know, who got sacked, who got moved sideways, who's going for this job. But it can also be about like who's shagging who. Yeah. And what particularly young women, members of parliament and staff find is that there's this kind of supercharged gossip network. I want to play you a little something from um, another former MP, Emma Hussar. She was a one term Labor MP. She um was elected in 2016 and ran into controversy um, a couple of years later when allegations were made about her sexual behaviour and also about how she ran her office and so on. She's out of parliament now um, and really struggling to find work. But this is where she she tells the story here of when she first realised that there was crazy gossip going on about her. I remember being at my desk one day um, in Canberra when I worked for another MP and getting a phone call from someone that I considered a mentor at the time, someone who had helped me, and he said to, to me, I hate to bring this to your attention, and I'm sitting at my, at my work desk in Canberra, and my MP is to my right, and my colleague is in front of me, and he tells me on the phone how there's a rumour circulating that we've slept together. And I kind of just turned my back and physically was like... I, I don't know whether to vomit or whether to cry. And I'm like, oh, so males and females in this place can't be colleagues, we can't work together. Um, so every time one of these rumours would come, it would just reinforce this idea that women were treated differently and that I was going to be treated differently. It didn't matter what I did, whether I was drunk and pissed at a function and falling all over the place or whether I went home early and was in bed well before my housemate arrived home I was going to be subjected to those kinds of rumours. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the environment that you've got to picture a lot of these women kind of operating in, this idea that... But I, I don't even know if that's necessarily just... if that just exists in, in Parliament. I mean, if you, if you think about a, a woman who is sexually empowered, she's a slut. If mm-hmm. you think about a man who is sexually empowered, he's a bloody... Casanova or some shit, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the reality of it, right? If you want to get pissed at a party, you don't have your shit together. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get pissed at a party and you're a fella, well, Legend. you're just yeah, you're one of the blokes, <laughs> you know. You're, you're down to earth. That makes you one of the good ones, you know. I think in it's Parliament, hard. like you know, lot, lots of other workplaces, that you know, stories that go around about you know what happens on tour mm. work differently for men and for women. So I've talked to heaps of women who say, look, I just don't, I don't socialise, I don't go out because I don't want to deal with, you know, this sort of additional layer of gossip about, you know, who I'm shagging or whatever. Mm. Um, So 
that is sort of something that I think women in Parliament have to sort of factor in and think about more than men do. But also there's this sort of question about the decision that you make about whether to say something, you know, when something's happened to you, something adverse that's happened to you. And I think we traditionally we think about these questions as being questions that face quite junior women, you know, like um, who are less powerful in a structure. But one thing that's really struck me is that it actually goes all the way to the top. Like even really powerful women have Mm. this same kind of really deep calculation about when to raise something and and when to not. And, I mean, this happened to our first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, who really delayed, deliberately delayed, calling out or commenting on some of the sexist stuff that was surfacing around her um, because she didn't want to take, she didn't want to pay the political price of having that be the thing that people thought about when they thought about her. She's insidious. Yeah, she was really conscious that she had a set, you know, opportunity to get in people's brains and to get a message across and she didn't want to kind of confuse that with a commentary about herself, her own gender and here's what's happening to me. So I just want to play you a little bit why uh, a bit of her explaining why women, including her, sometimes hesitate to speak out about sexism. There's still a difficult judgment call at the centre of whether you call it out. If you call it out, then you're likely to beg a series of questions about are you doing it for political reasons? Aren't you inherently conflicted? Are you pointing this out because it's sexism or are you pointing it out because you want to divert from this, that or other thing that's happening in that political moment? If you call it out, will you be characterised as the one who complains too much? Uh, I think those calibrations still go through women's minds. In my view, each woman has to make her own judgments about that. You know, you can't just hand the manual and say, you always must call it out. Um, That's too simplistic. There will be times when it will work and times when it might well be the right decision for the woman not to react. I think more of us over here who aren't in that moment now need to pick up the burden of calling it out. And I'm glad to see that that's increasingly happening. That was amazing. Yeah, I I hadn't heard her actually explain so explicitly that process that that people go through. And I think... I I just loved that. It was so thoughtful and considered and realistic, you know, that, like... That's that's somebody that I reckon probably everyone goes, well, why didn't she call it out more or, you know, but and, and just that she straight up said, no, we can't just make it as simplistic as call it out. Right. So, and I mean, keep in mind, she's a politician, right? Politicians are super strategic about mm. what they spend their energies on, what they spend their word space on, you know, mm. like there's only a certain amount of time that you're prepared listening to what a politician says before you shut down, right, before mm. you switch off. So spending that attention is a really big decision for any politician. Well, I've, you've just made me love Julia Gillard. Have I? <laughs> yeah, through a couple of these things, just hearing her as a, as a woman and not a politician. Well, she's, she's, had, smart. she's had a lot of time since that kind of crazy couple of years where she was the Prime Minister. She mm. kind of went into it super suddenly and then she was there and... You know, a whole lot of stuff happened, some of which I think she would say is about gender and some of which wasn't. Like she was a very, you know, she was a super energetic political player. Like she's 
you know, a very mm. muscular practitioner of the political arts, I guess. But she's had a bit of time, I think, since then to think about the decisions that she made. And I think she certainly regrets now not calling out that stuff mm. earlier. She thought that it would kind of go away. But look, opinions about this do really range across the political spectrum. Mm. So um, I talk to lots of women, particularly women in the Liberal Party, who say if you speak out, sometimes you make yourself a victim and you make yourself powerless in the situation. I just want to get you to listen to Amanda Vanstone, who's a former Howard government minister, um, former South Australian senator. She is known for her plain speaking. Here's what she's got to say about calling it out. It's a bad thing to play the victim because what you say is, I'm less powerful than you. You've given it away. Don't do that. Don't let them have the agenda like that. You've got to be a maker and shaper of your own life, not a taker of what others dish up, and that's what you are if you play the victim role. Now, that's not to say that you're not a victim on occasions, but don't play that role. You only give the victor, if you like, a bigger victory. Isn't there a downside risk that if you let these behaviours or patterns go unremarked that they're never challenged? Ah, you can challenge the person. That's different from going out to the media and playing the victim. Look at me, I'm the victim. You might as well say to all women when you come in, watch out, you know, you're going to be made the victim. Terrible. Terrible thing to do. Can you think of some instances where you've challenged people directly? Ah, gee, there'd be so many where you'd say to someone something in response to put them back in their box that honestly... But you could do things like you could say to someone, if there was a touch-up artist, you could say, next time that happens, I'm ringing your wife. That's all you need to do. I... I disagree with her I think I actually think accepting that you've been a victim of something is the most important part of healing to take away I think the thing that often plagues people is the feeling of responsibility Mm. when it comes to these things you go should I have done something else could I have done more and I think that is the thing that starts to break down at the core of somebody or you know that really starts to play on your identity and all that sort of thing and accepting that, oh, wait, somebody did something to me or that I was a victim in that moment, being able to in that moment call yourself a victim uh, actually helps you heal, I think. Um, I understand what she's saying. I just think that I would be very wary for others to take it on board as the way to address things. Yeah, I think this is where the crossover between gender politics and actual politics becomes mm. really interesting because if you are a a player of the political game, one of the most important things that you never do in politics is concede that you are less powerful than somebody else, right? Like mm. so Amanda Vanstone's analyzing this through a power dynamic. She's saying, yeah. "Don't ever say you got to me because that way you know they know that they've won." But but even that's bullshit to me. I mean, like <laughs> sorry, like this just to that is actually that epitomizes what made me stop being interested in politics huh, full right. stop is that I truly believe that the most important thing that we need to have is humility and vulnerability. There is so much power in conceding that somebody has thrown you 
it's just something that really gets to me. Well, I guess you never change the system if you accept all the rules that the system contains, right? So that's why I wanted to finish with you um, with one more example um, of uh, a Green senator, Sarah Hanson-Young, who dealt with the situation she was facing in the Senate Mm. by going outside the system altogether. So she had a colleague, crossbench colleague, called David Leonhelm, who was part of a group of men who had been kind of just heckling, low-level heckling, like Emma Hussar, she had a lot of gossip going around about her sex life because she was a young woman, single woman in Parliament. And so there were these group of senators who would call out men's names at her across the Parliament oh, as gosh. she was talking, you know, just to throw her off her game. And lots of, I mean, it's like sledging, right? And she for a long time didn't say anything, didn't respond because she didn't want to give them the satisfaction. But eventually this kind of came to a huge head and um, this guy, David Leonhelm, went actually outside the chamber and was talking on TV about um, how she had lots of boyfriends and all this stuff. And she decided to sue him. Good. (laughs) So this was a really remarkable thing to do because senators don't sue each other, but she won. And so she kind of went outside the political system for a solution. She got, like, massively condemned for it, but also a lot of people found it helpful to watch. And I just wanted to finally just play you her account of the thought processes that she went through before taking that massive decision. It was quite clear to me that this wasn't... wasn't wasn't just about me and it wasn't about my daughter. This was because women everywhere, whatever, whether it's in the parliament or in the shop floor, women everywhere know what it feels like when a bloke does the wrong thing and you're told, don't rock the boat, just don't make a fuss. Yeah, well, I'm sick of it. And women everywhere are sick of it. Well said. So... I just think this is such an evolving situation, right? Like one of the things that, I mean, this last year has been so upsetting and kind of confronting and caused a lot of, I think, women to kind of look at things that have happened to them over the course of their lives and careers. I just, in some ways it's depressing, isn't it, that this stuff keeps happening? But then in some ways I look at the way that these women kind of hear each other's stories and are affected by them and I find it so moving of course. Particularly seeing older women, like, learn from younger women as well. And it's kind of why I wanted to talk to you about all this stuff too because, like, you're, like, quite a bit younger than me and I think that these stories have to be actually ventilated across generations to have the kind of power that they can have when they're all put together. Yeah, of course, because I think I think it's very empowering. Like, if you go, oh, this is a bit shit, you know, like what's mm. happening in my life <laughs> is a bit shit and then you learn how shit it was you go well I don't want anyone to go through that again Mm -hmm. and okay I don't want it to get to that point therefore I have a responsibility and I have I'm empowered enough to do xyz to continue to make sure that this just isn't a problem yeah and giving just giving other women the cover to come and to talk or Mm. to even create the space where these stories are actually, you know, heard and are powerful rather than just being something that women kind of hand around, you know, in ladies' toilets and kind of, you know, gossip about them within themselves without really kind of letting the stories travel further. Yeah. How good's Kate, though? She's great. Yeah. She's really great. She's also a really good demonstration, I think, sometimes that, you know, age can be empowering too. Like where you get Mm. to the point where you just, you don't, kind of follow other people's rules anymore. I love that about her. 
I like it too. I don't even know yeah. what she looks like, but I've got a whole thing of her in my head. She looks <laughs> like a naughty retired school teacher. Excellent. <laughs> She's Good. the best. <laughs> thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. And look, if you don't have anyone to talk to um, about something that's happened to you or maybe even listening to this podcast has raised some issues for you, then please remember that the 1-800-RESPECT number is there 24-7 to um, lend an ear to you if you've got no one else. There are so many stories about women in Parliament from the last 100 years and we cover some of them in this podcast and we cover more of them in the misrepresented TV show. You can binge the whole lot on iview right now. Well, I'm not done with seeing your face yet, Annabelle, so I'll be watching. This is why I love you, Steph. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.